Let's take a moment here. Those are great words. That song uh, is in public domain, which means it's an old song. Uh, and no truer word in a lot of these worship songs has been spoken than in some of these older songs. It's just amazing. Very direct. Trust and obey. That's the only way to Jesus. The only way to Jesus. Very direct. Uh, I just want to say uh, before we start the, into the sermon um, that <clears throat> I think it was right to talk about peace in our hearts um, because, you know, we sometimes don't find it around us. Uh, I love the fact that we're family here. We are a family. Uh, we need to not be worried about noise, children running around. Do not worry about it, okay? I know you don't worry about it because people are still praying. That's family, church. That's what we do. We enjoy time together. So you need to find, we need to find peace with Jesus rather than worrying about peace around us. Does that make sense? That, that's what I'm saying today, okay? Because it's joyful peace. I love little feet running around. It's just life. It's great. It's fantastic. Uh, please don't take that as any other way other than don't stop her, please. Okay? <laughs> Although you can't, can you? So. <laughs> You try, but you can't. <laughs> okay, let's have a look. We're, uh, I, I, need, um, I need to ask a favour today. That's to really focus. This is going to be probably about as long as the others. It may be a little longer. There's a lot to cover. Uh, so um, if you feel that you're sitting down too much, by all means, just get up, right? If you just need to stand up and let the blood flow a little bit, just do that. Shake the legs out, whatever you need to do to just keep awake. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it's boring, but I know some of you have had a cake today as well. So, you know, your cakes sit heavy, you know, great cake. I'm going to have some afterwards. Uh, so just be aware of that. Um, but feel free, whatever you need to do, okay? Because we're looking at uh, what we're calling here the trumpet interlude. Uh, and this is about the angel, the little scroll, and the two witnesses, and the seventh trumpet. That's what we are looking at. There's, there's not much to say at the beginning, uh, apart from there's not a huge um, particular application to this, other than, um, can I say, this is an exegesis, what we probably call that when we look at this text. Uh, we're going to really look into what this means. I'd say the only application I can find in this is just please keep trusting in Jesus. That song is so appropriate. Please keep on trusting in him. Uh, I, I, it's very difficult at times, and in particular, it will be difficult uh, as we read about Revelation and the times that we'll see in Revelation. So as usual, I'm just going to go through these blocks of verses for us, uh, and then I'll, I'll explain uh, how it all fits together, hopefully, at the end, and, and just what we need to take away uh, a little bit. What we need to do is be in Scripture. Uh, that's what we need to be doing when we're looking at Revelation context and learning more scripture. Okay, so this is part six, and here we go. This is uh, verses, if I get this right, uh, verses we're going to look at first. Re Revelation 10, verse 1 to 4, he says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with uh, a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun, his legs were like fiery pillars. Uh, he was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted the right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion when he shouted the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up the seven thunders, uh, have, what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. What is this first part about? So who is this angel? The angel uh, that John first sees here um, can't be Jesus, by the way. Sounds like Jesus. It does. Uh, but it isn't Jesus. Um, you may not agree with that. Um, there's certain aspects to uh, the text which tell you that it probably isn't Jesus uh, in the way it says. There's, there's more evidence here. Uh, that will see why it's not Jesus. Um, but here we see uh, what they call, as we said, I think in last week's one, another angel. 
which is another angel of the same type. So this is the same translation again. It's another angel of the same, uh, being the same angel, but of a different purpose, different mission uh, that we'll see here. And this wording was found in our original text last week. Another angel for this purpose, but of the same kind as the others. The angel being robed in a cloud is to say that the angel has a specific purpose um, by what God made him for, or made them for, or in this case, what he has robed them with. So the robes represent a mission, represents a purpose, uh, what they're going to do. And so they robe the, he robes the angel in a particular robe uh, to go and do this next thing. So being robed in a cloud uh, is a sign that God is bringing judgment or intervening in some way or another. So the cloud isn't so much the sign of an angel, rather something that God is doing to intervene. The angel being the messenger of the judgment in this case. Uh, we see this, uh, a similar thing when we use to talk about clouds, in Exodus 24, verses 15 to 18. I've got 16 to 18. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. I've, I've actually missed out like the fundamental verse. Verse 15, when Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, it says in verse 15. Uh, and the glory uh, of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. Uh, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Uh, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That is all of it. Just want to make sure. In this particular case, we're looking at clouds and rainbows, but the, the rainbow in particular. So there's an example of the cloud. There's, there's a sense that God is speaking, a sense that God is doing something, and you get this sense of a cloud. So the robe for the angel is just doing the work of God. Uh, and so it's, it's, we're not actually particularly to pay attention to what the angel or who the angel is, which we, many people get caught up in. It's not important. I'm going to tell you, it's not majorly important. What's important is to be aware of the judgment that the angel has to bring, which is what God's judgment is at this point. So the rainbow, the rainbow above his head, it says in the text, helps us to know that if it's, uh, that it is from God by reflecting the promise God made to man through a rainbow. You might remember this in Genesis 9, 13 to 16. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, rainbow and clouds working together again, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again uh, will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Verse 16, uh, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So wrapped up in this appearance of the rainbow is the covenant. So you see, when I talked about imagery in Revelation, this is what it's doing. You have to be careful to pick out what is imagery, what do we need to see as what God's judgment is through all of this. Uh, but really what this is doing at this point is just, it just keeps reaffirming that God is at work. That's what we keep seeing. The reason why we keep going back to Old Testament, even New Testament text, is to show that it is God saying these things and God doing these things. They are reminders because God is the same all the time. He does the same thing all the time in that sense. There is a sense that we can trust that if God does something in the Old Testament, he can do it whenever he likes afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Characters, he's building up a, a sort of character for us that we can know it's him for sure. That's why we, we need to trust in him. So it's the covenant that holds until the end times in Revelation. What God was showing here was that he was fulfilling promises made right from the start until the end. Uh, Isaiah 55 verse 11. Lots of verses today. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. All from the beginning to the end, it is consistent all the way. Okay, so when, when we say that what we see in Revelation, when it finally comes, when Jesus comes back, it will be unmistakable. So these are, these are signs and things we can use about understanding who God is and go, that's what God has done before. And so we know it's God doing it now. 
Does that, does that make sense? That's what, that's what we need to do when we see these things happen. When we pray, when we seek God's guidance, God will be consistent in what he says and what he does. It's just the same thing we need to keep applying to our lives today, as well as seeing this in Revelation. God is doing what he always planned to do and promised to do. The angel was a reflection of God's holiness, divine glory, and immovable in his stance as he plants one foot in the land and one foot in the sea. It is a sign of the immovable judgment of God. It cannot be changed. We cannot decide whether uh, this judgment is right or wrong. It will happen and no one will be able to move it. And his face was like the sun, it says, and his legs were like fiery pillars. It is unmistakable. And so this angel holds a little scroll. And what we see from the text is that this one has already been opened. This one is not the same scroll, but a scroll that has already been opened. And I can tell you that the amount of times people keep uh, guessing at what's on the scroll. I mean, we can do this in maybe some of the others and think about what's in the main scroll and what's, what judgments it might be about people and what God's going to do. But there's no other text that talks about the little scroll. Okay? Again, there are things that are important and things that are not important. But what is the purpose of the little scroll? Well, no one knows what's in it. But one commentator does put it is that at the very least, it might seem to represent in this vision the written authority given to the angel to fulfill his mission. So we don't know what's on it, but actually if it's given to the angel, it might be what he's got to do. It might be his mission. But the angel standing in the land and the sea is a representation of total ownership. God owns creation. Conquering every place on earth. Taking possession of the world in order to carry out what is next. And this is likely why we see the angel roar like a lion. Just as a, a lion might do after a kill to all others, that it's his property, that he owns it, that no one can come near it. It is to reinforce this sense of majesty and power of our Lord Jesus. It, it, it shows the power that he has, that no one can contend what he is going to do. When it's his, it is his. After the conquest and the roar, the seven peals of thunder follow. As if maybe a response from God to, to the cry of the angel really interesting psalm psalm 29 verse 3 to 9 uh, we've got something here and we talk about thunders and uh, and, and this it's kind of raw and this this power that the lord speaks out we see this in psalm 29 verses 3 to 9 the voice of the lord is over the waters the god of glory thunders the lord thunders over the mighty waters the voice of the lord is powerful the voice of the lord is majestic and we're understanding why Maybe John can't write this down. Is this God speaking? God doesn't want him to write that. This is the voice, maybe, the voice of God. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in places the cedars of Lebanon. Again, up to 9, verse 6, he makes Lebanon leap like a calf, a Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. We're seeing these peals of thunder happening. We're seeing this same sense of the angel delivering the judgment that is God's. And then glory to God. And then the thunder maybe a response from god I can only imagine what john is hearing right now as he's as he's in this moment present in this time and of course many of us would say what is it he wasn't allowed to write down i'm going to say it again it doesn't matter it doesn't matter let it be clear though that this is the glory of god And so God says to him, <clears throat> seal up what the seven thunders have said. 
I'm going to say this a lot. A lot of these things don't matter, but I'm going to tell you some of the things of the, what they might be and what they might mean. So I'm always going to, I'm always going to start with many of these things and say, it doesn't matter. And there's a reason for that, because if we get caught up in all this little stuff over here, we're going to miss the big things that are going on. Okay. But we do need to understand. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why? Why would God not want him to write that? Not what he didn't want him, why? And I wonder if it is God himself responding. I wonder if it's God himself speaking. As he speaks, God of glory thunders, it says in the Psalms. Then maybe this makes more sense that John is not to write down what these thunders say. Rather, it is to ascribe glory to God alone. You don't need to write it down. Just give me glory. And then we move on. Verses 5 to... Go on. 5 to 7. Then the, angel, uh, the, then the angel I'd seen, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens, heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants at the prophets. Proof, I think we see in these verses, that this angel is not Jesus. The angel ascribing glory to God, worships the one who created it. I just wonder why we make this so complicated. Just read the text and it will tell you. Is this Jesus? No. Why? Because the Bible says so. This angel swears by him who lives forever, not by himself, by him, Jesus Christ, who lives forever, God, who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And again, you're just you're going to see a pattern of what these these little moments of what John says, and you're going to see him in other parts of the Bible, so you know that he's seeing what he's really seeing. One Timothy one verse seventeen. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, forever and ever. Amen. Patterns, patterns, and patterns to understand that this is God. There's so many other verses where this happens. Be honour and glory forever and ever. Glory to God forever and ever. It's so we know it is the immortal God. But this oath that the angel makes is to the person and work of God. As the external, self-existent God who created all things. And then the angel announces there'd be no more delay. And other questions arise. Is this, is this because we had 30 minutes of silence? Are we still in the 30 minutes of silence that we had before? And now there's no more delay? Does the 30 minutes come to an end? Is that why the angel has called for no more delay? Again, it doesn't much matter. But the word used in the original translation of time is the literal translation of time chronos, chronological. So we know that this in particular, this reference is talking about time. It is time. The angel announces that time has run out. There'll be no more time before God completes his purpose on earth as the earth or world exists today. He means that once the seventh trumpet is sounded, the time of allowing Satan and rebellion to continue will be over. God will act swiftly now to establish his true rule of righteousness on earth. This period of the patience of God is over. And so it goes on. Revelation 10, 8 to 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll. We read from there instead that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went up to the angel this is different. John went up to the angel. 
that's never been seen before. Have you seen that? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen John get involved. He's asked someone. Now he's approaching the angel. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth, it would be as sweet as honey. Verse 10, I took, a li- I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. No surprise there, he was told that would happen. Verse 11, then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, uh, nations, languages, and kings. The same voice that stopped John from writing about the thunder now says to eat the little scroll. The book which will be bitter to his stomach but sweet in his mouth, it will give him heartburn but it will be so sweet to taste. Where have we seen this before? Ezekiel 2, verse 9 to 10. Then I looked and saw a hand stretched out to me. It was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Could be the little scroll. We're in the middle of a woe, remember? Second woe, I think we're in right now. Another verse, Ezekiel 3, verses 1 to 4. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you, eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Verse 3, then he said to him, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Verse 4, he then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. The similarities are astonishing. What John was going to do after he ate the scroll was go and prophesy to the people, to the peoples, to the nations, to all the languages across the world. Son of man, now go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. This is God. For John and for us, it reveals that the word of God must have such an effect on us that we have a response to it. The only difference between Ezekiel and John in this case in Revelation is the sour taste. Maybe that's the judgments. Sweet taste of salvation, sour taste of sin and brokenness. One of the bitter tastes of sin and the other of a sweet taste of salvation. It must impact us. It must deal with sin. It must deal with pride in the pit of our stomach showing that it is indeed far-reaching to every part of ourselves. But at the same time, what is in the mouth is a sweet taste of redemption and salvation. It is counterintuitive, is the word. It doesn't make sense to the world that you would accept and believe that you are not worthy of God's salvation unless it was because of Jesus Christ. The world does not like you believing that you're worthless. And the only thing that makes us of any worth is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. But yet, what do we see today? No, no, no. You're so valuable. Everything you do, you're so great. You're brilliant. You're the center of the universe. You can be the center of the universe. Yet God says, no, you're not. You are not the center of this universe. The entire earth, the universe, belongs to God and he is about to reclaim it. The whole world will lie in rebellion. All the races, peoples and kingdoms will come under the power of the beast and his satanic system. But grace and mercy is shown before the last trumpet is sounded so they can still come to Jesus. So then we get another kind of part of the interlude, the two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? This is another one I'm going to talk about. It's not important, but I'm going to talk about it. Just because we need to know, right? We need to know what people are saying in order to go, that's not actually going to save me by knowing it. Yeah? 
we need to look at scripture differently, that it's not challenging us like a quiz. We actually take it in and we learn about the Bible and then we use that to trust God, even if it doesn't make sense. Verses uh, 11, sorry, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. I was given uh, a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours the enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. There's too much to go into here to unpack everything in these verses. But we'll touch briefly on, on some of these bits. This measuring rod was, was a giant reed. Uh, so uh, maybe we can picture this as a cane that grew in the Jordan Valley, similar to that, uh, and a height of around 12 to 20 feet. Uh, so the picture of it we can also see on earth uh, today. Uh, but John, as we see here, even as we saw in the little scroll is actively involved and called to measure the temple of God and the altar. So now he's interacting with the environment that he has been allowed to see. He was to measure or judge the value, the worth, the character of the standards of the temple and its worship and the people within it. If God judge, judges the people within any church, we failed. We're all going to fail on our own. We do not meet the standard of this measuring cane. But it is an important lesson for us to know that man and his worship are always judged by the standards of God. Regardless of what man thinks, the only thing that counts is God's judgment and standard of both our lives and our worship. The measuring reed is a representation of God's standard and so must come up to his standard. But then you say, but I can't make it to his standard. We're not worthy to make it to his standard. We can't do it. So I need to be clear that this isn't talking about how we need to meet his standard in our own merit. It is the absolute truth that only through Jesus can we be righteous in the sight of God. That text assumes as it were, that you believe in Jesus. The only thing that's being measured here is our is got Jesus' righteousness. And because Jesus is God, it's perfect. And if you're in Jesus, we measure up. Does that make sense? You measure up not because of you, not because of me, because of Jesus. Rather, what this is saying is what we are able to do is to discern both in our lives and in our worship of him what is right and proper worship toward God. Necessary to passing the test is our worship which must be done in faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures and in the spirit. It is not about how well you do it. It is not about how great you look. I remember the play on th Thursday on Refresh, the man who was, oh, how great am I? Yes. Showing off. But I've done all these things. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about how you look. If my worship is because I'm doing it to worship God, that's enough. If all my worship is to praise him, that's enough. John 4, 22 to 24. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. These are the words of the Bible. It's not about perfection. It is about worshipping in spirit and truth. That my worship is not about how I feel about worship. It is not that it makes me feel nice. It is that I can get a chance to glorify the very God that saved me. And that is all that matters. So as we look at these verses here, not in John, but in Revelation, we could talk about the literal side of this temple. The measurements. We can see it in the ark, right? We can see the literal uh, things that God said about how the ark should be built. But it's it is more important to get across the purpose of it rather than the presence of it physically. So when, then we read about the two witnesses and what we find is that God will give them what they need to accomplish the mission. God will give them protection, miraculous power, authoritative, uh, an effective testimony, uh, and ultimate deliverance. That's a lot of power. But God has ownership over these witnesses, just as he has over everyone. We belong to him and are put here on the earth to serve God, but effective representation of Christ only occurs when men and women walk in close fellowship with God. The witnesses, it says, were to speak forth, to herald a message, to preach, speaking forth of future events. God calls them to be dressed in sackcloth because of what it symbolized, it expressed mourning, woe we saw in Ezekiel. Repentance, judgment, their message will essentially be the message of John the Baptist, that of announcing uh, the coming judgments and calling them to repent. And they will do this for some reason for three and a half years. The purposes of God are sometimes just that, just his purposes. So what do other people ask about these things? What, what is it? What, what's the questions that it generates? Some people ask, are they Elijah and Moses, these two witnesses? I don't believe that to be the case. The two witnesses are not literally Elijah and Moses, but two men whom God will raise up in the spirit and power of the Old Testament counterparts. They're similar, but similarity does not mean the same. Their ministries are similar because they are ministering to Israel and that would carry great significance uh, for the Jews. Matthew 11 verses 10 to 14 says this, uh, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there was not, there has not risen anyone greater uh, than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. John insists, sorry, Jesus insists that John was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would be sent to prepare the way for Christ. But John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. When they asked him, they said to him, are you Elijah? No, I'm not. And he was telling the truth. He's not Elijah because the way they're seeing it is not power and truth. It's not spirit and power. John was not Elijah. We might call him a virtual Elijah. He had everything in him that Elijah is. He's doing everything in the power of that same principle of what Elijah brought. So here we can see this pattern of people coming in the power of purpose and, sorry, in power and of purpose of others. Rather than being the actual people, it is actually uh, 
people being uh, people used and reflecting of those that have been before. Matthew 17, verses 2 to 4. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and the clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You've got to love Peter, haven't you? Oh, I just want to serve. Oh, let me build some structures for you. Let me build a house for you. I love you, Jesus. I just, I'm going to build these things for you. Hey, Peter, come on. I know, but that's not what we're here for. What we see is that when they are actual people, when people actually come, maybe even from the Old Testament, the Bible says it is those people. When Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, it is Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Do you see how easy it is not to get so wrapped up in the kind of the, the fake mystery of the Bible? It's not, don't, there, are, there are fake mysteries and there are real mysteries. It's very easy to understand from the text that many of the, of the times, if they do come, the Bible will tell us who those people are. If it doesn't tell us, it probably isn't those people. Simple rule? I think so. But ultimately, these people, they won't be known by being other people, but by what they are there to do. Their ministry is characterized in their conduct by four great miraculous powers. First is they can kill their enemies with fire. Then they can withhold rain for three and a half years. Then they can turn water into blood and then they can bring plagues upon the earth. I mean, there's going to be no other people who can do that. So again, it is clear and obvious that when these people come, they will be the two witnesses. They will be used to turn the hearts of the Jews to the Lord in preparation for the coming king. We're going to keep going. 7 to 10 in chapter 11. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. God's allowing that to happen, by the way. It's not that they're weak. God allows that to happen. Their bodies will, be, will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Uh, for three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Uh, the inhabitants of the earth will glow over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. The two witnesses are killed by the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit. But it will be after they have finished their mission. It won't be because they have been interrupted. It is because they have finished their mission and testimony to the world. We need to be clear. The devil does not have power over our lives. He can tempt us and he can suggest things to us but he does not have power over us. We are witnesses of the Lord and he will protect us until our testimony is finished. He will be right and perfect in that timing. Giving testimony is what a witness does. It says their bodies will be used to gloat over and the inhabitants of the earth will celebrate their death because of some form of perceived victory. The sickness of the people of this time are represented by three things. First, it's Sodom. That's speaking of immorality. Then it's Egypt, speaking of oppression and slavery. And then it's the great city, a term often applied to Babylon, the headquarters of the Antichrist. And how will the whole world gloat over the deaths of these witnesses? You have to ask yourself when you read the text, how will the whole world gloat over it and know about it unless this is speaking of a future time. 
We know that in Old Testament times, there's no way the whole world would know about these things. Yeah, they might get around because people traveled. How else do we do this today? Mass media. We can turn on the telly, telly, turn on our phones. We can surf the internet and all sorts. And it says here, the whole world will celebrate. So this is likely through mass media. 24-7 instant access news streams. And in the old world, there's no way that the whole world would know about one particular incident in one place. Unless it was taken there. I read this once, and many uh, pastors have quoted it. Um, there was a Christmas card that was once um, produced a long time ago. And I can't remember the name of the guy who actually said this. It's a, a preacher from a long time ago. But many preachers, and I'm about to do the same, as quote, have quoted it. Uh, and as far as I can tell, it's true. It's really happened. Um, but there was once a Christmas card with a Bible verse printed on it. Can you guess what Bible verse it might have been? This is, bear in mind, this is a Christmas card. Now, I don't know about you, when you send Christmas cards, you want happy things, right? The producer of this Christmas card thought, this is a good verse to use, isn't it? This would be really powerful. Revelation 11, verse 10, was printed on a Christmas card once. It's astounding. To, it, this, should, this should shock you as Christians go, why? I'm meant to be sending this sort of happy messages to people. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. Because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Can you believe that was written on a Christmas card? I mean, when we talk about context, someone needs to have done that research. It is incredible. The biggest misquote I've probably seen in all my life, if I'm honest. It does speak into, though, our issue of, not, of, of people not believing this stuff will, will actually come about. More that they treat scripture like some uh, just collection of things, collection of, of, cha of chapters and sentences and it, it, it should then, whilst you laugh at it, then we must think, that's sad. It's incredibly sad that people think that this scripture is not going to come about. But then we go on. 11 to 14, chapter 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At uh, that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Verse 14, the second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. Again, in this amazing terrible time what do we find grace people bowed down and worship the lord even in these times grace is still operating salvation still operates but as this happens before the eyes of the watching world the enemies of these two witnesses are horrified and astonished the earth was not worthy of these two witnesses so god simply calls them home and they ascend to heaven in yes a cloud the earthquake brings judgment and moves many to give glory to god but it will rem it remain to be seen if this will become true repentance unto salvation i really hope it will let me bring this sermon to a close on the seventh trumpet uh, to end on a strange high it's a kind of it's an odd one, but but I'll get there. I promise. Uh, verses fifteen. These are the final section of our verses. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his and of his Messiah, 
and he will reign forever and ever. And the only 24 elders who were seated, and the 24 elders, sorry, who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. I, I, I just, I think about when we do that, because we've, we've sometimes done that, we just kind of want to just lay down, like physically, and just go, Lord, when I see this fell, I'm saying, I think when I see this, I see the power of the presence of God and they literally fall. Like there is no way they can stop themselves except to fall on their face. On their face. They fell on their faces and worshipped God. 17, saying we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. The time has come for the kingdom of the world to become the kingdom of the Lord. What a great day that will be. The time is to worship and give thanks. But why now? Do you remember back in Revelation I've got Revelation 11. I don't think that's right. The reason why I'm quoting this actually because I need to tell you about another verse. Revelation 11 verse 18 says, The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. There's a reason for this happening. Because God promised it would happen. And you don't even have to look that far back to find it. Revelation 6, verse 9 to 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, will you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. We're now at that time. God said, I'm going to do it, but you need to wait. It's coming. And what we see in Revelation 11 is the fulfillment of that promise. It has come. In God's timing, it will be done. Then it says the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple. And this refers to God's throne. There's a good quote here from uh, a teacher, Bible teacher called, um, I think it's Alfred is his name, Alfred. Uh, and he says the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's faithfulness in bestowing grace on his people and inflicting vengeance on his people's enemies. Heavy stuff. The great and awesome phenomenon at the opening of the temple and the revelation of the ark showed that the presence of the Lord is here. The Lord has arrived. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. This chapter closes in triumph. With the heavenly temple in view, God in his absolute holiness must deal with the sin and rebellion of man. But how does this section end on a high? All this is seen in heaven to remind us that God is going to fulfill his covenant promises. It is to encourage faith in Jesus. So I believe that rather than giving us a sense of fear, it should give us again a sense of urgency. The people are condemning themselves to an eternity in hell. And only because they will not let go of this life and embrace a new life in Jesus. I'm not doing that from a judgmental position. I'm saying, why don't you have what we have? Because we want you to join us in eternity worshipping God. But it is the only thing standing in between them and God is their own condemnation to hell 
that they can choose to come to Jesus. That is all that stands between people and an eternity in heaven. So this, I hope, encourages you to continue to share the gospel as we see these are times that will be coming indeed. And I say this to whoever, um, hey, look, even if Christians here now, you have doubts, you have worries, you, you're not sure. For those that may watch this and see who are not Christian, for those who haven't considered Christ as their saviour, we need to be clear that if anyone rem re remains, anyone chooses to remain away from Christ, let no one say they were not warned. Let no one say none of us were warned of the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ. So this invite goes out to anyone and everyone to consider it with great urgency and so be fully convinced that belief and trust in the Lord Jesus is the only way to be saved. Let's pray and then we'll worship uh, together as we draw our service to an end. <clears throat> Lord, uh, as we look more into the book of Revelation, just in your whole word, um, there is no ambiguity of what is to come. Uh, there is no ambiguity in choosing heaven or hell. That is the choice to choose Jesus and live in eternity with him who will provide the righteousness that we need to be presented in front of God so that we may glorify God for the rest of eternity, or we choose to reject Jesus. And so we have chosen our destination. Lord, we want to pray here today that this revelation is not to be used to instill a sense of fear and force people into becoming believers in Jesus. Because for that, they will miss out on the relationship with our Lord and Saviour. Lord, I pray now that people will come because this Bible is true, that what is said in here will happen. And those two things are the options. Those options are it. Will we choose to follow Jesus, bow the knee, fall on our face and worship him and say, you are Lord every day. Or will we just reject him and say, I don't need you. My life is comfortable as it is. Oh, Lord, we pray that people will know that there is more to life as we need to pray for ourselves that there is more to life than what we see around us. Thank you, Lord, for the timing of a laughing child. <laughs> joy, joy, joy. <laughs> We praise you, Lord, as we praise your name. May it be to glorify you as we worship now, Lord, to glorify you, not to make ourselves feel better, not to bring ourselves to a place that just makes us feel good about going to church, but is about worshipping the true Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We ask these things.